just how far away is the east from the west. And that's how far our sins have been removed. Let's uh, take a moment and reflect upon that as we uh, continue in our worship time together with a word of prayer as we look to get into the study of God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you that indeed you have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that we can find peace and rest in you. Help us now to be renewed in our vision of who you are and what you've done for us, particularly when we face those battles as the day begins and as it seems that your truth is being drowned out by the storms that we face day to day. So I pray that your words written by your servant Peter and now spoken by your servant find a life-changing home in each of our hearts. May you be pleased to guide us and direct us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be together to continue our study in First Peter. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember a little bracelet that came out in the 1990s uh, that you would put around. It was uh, to be a reminder that when you were facing different struggles of what you should be looking at. Does anybody remember that? All right, you're dating yourself, right? How, how many others remember that? All right, so what would Jesus do, right? Uh, how many of you had and wore one of those bracelets? All right, how many of you still have it? I won't ask how many still wear it, uh, uh, but it's not a bad thing to do. Uh, what would Jesus do? It was an opportunity as a reminder to us that when we're facing difficulties in life to step back and see what it is, how Jesus would respond. I think that's a great idea. However, one of the weaknesses of that is that it really sort of puts the focus on us and our response, using Jesus as an example for us and say, well, if he would have done this, I should do this. It put a, put a lot of emphasis on, on who we were and what we could do. Uh, again, it's not bad to have that kind of reminder, but there was a tendency there for that thinking to drift into, okay, what do I need to do? I really think there are two better questions we're going to look at today. Uh, WDJD, what did Jesus do? And another WW is, what will Jesus do? Peter's pattern here as we've studied this book has been to focus on both what Jesus has done for us, what did Jesus do, and what he has promised to do for us, what will he do, and then go into how that should affect our behavior. We have seen that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and that he's coming back for us. So what did Jesus do and what will Jesus do? Last week, Peter gave us two examples of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. We are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. We are the people of God. And today we are going to look at the practical outworkings of some of that. How are we to live now between the time that Jesus called us to be his followers and the time when he will come back for us? especially because life in this world is often very difficult, very challenging. And that's why I entitled this series, Life on Our Journey Home. We are, as Christians, on a journey home. 
We are on our way to that heavenly home that God has prepared for us, but we're living life now, and Peter is dealing with what that life looks like. So I direct your attention to today's passage. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11, going through chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 3, 7. And uh, feel free to follow along as I read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. We're going to look, spend a little bit of time in verses 11 and 12, because here Peter sets the stage, I believe, for what is coming next. He focuses on some challenges that we face now as followers of Jesus, and he starts off by saying who we are in this world. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We are sojourners and exiles as Christians. We've already seen this word exiles from chapter 1, 
verse 1, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. That word exiles means resident foreigners, resident foreigners. It means you're a citizen of another country. You have come here and you're now living in this country. You're not a tourist. You are a resident. You are living here, but you're a foreigner. This is not your home. Any of us understand what that feels like here. Some of us have had that experience in living other places. But as Christians, we are resident foreigners. But he also says you are sojourners, sojourners. A sojourner is a person who for a period of time lives in a place that's not their normal residence. A sojourner is a person who for a period of time lives in a place which is not his normal residence. So in using these terms, which are very similar, Peter is saying we are living in a foreign land, but it's only temporary. (laughs) But we don't know how long that temporary is going to be. We are not tourists. We don't have our return ticket. We don't know when we're going home. We are resident foreigners. We are sojourners and exiles. As Christians, we are citizens of another land. Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are foreigners living here temporarily. Then Peter goes from who we are in this world to what we face. And there are two areas of suffering that we face in this world. There you go again, talking about suffering. I think it's important for us to realize, contrary to sometimes how we present the gospel and sometimes how we may have heard the gospel, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Jesus does not relieve us of all the sufferings of this life, of this broken world, but he guides us how to respond to those, which is what Peter is going to be looking at this morning. In fact, as we're going to look at, sometimes if you come to Jesus, your suffering is going to increase your suffering is going to get worse. So we need to put suffering in its proper context. In verse 11, after he urges them as sojourners and exiles, he said, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a, there's a suffering from within that we experience. We experience a suffering from within This is our inward struggle against sin. Yes, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been given a new life. But the old life of sin and self-focus continues to fight on. There's a war going on within us. That's one of the ways that Christians actually end up suffering more sometimes than those who don't know the Lord because that battle is not going on in an unbeliever's life. In a Christian, we have the Spirit of God within us that is warring against this sin nature within us. We have this inward struggle of sin which causes suffering. An incomplete list is selfishness, deceit, envy, slander, immorality, substance use, filthy talk, witchcraft, sorcery, pride, violence, anger, bitterness, greed. The list goes on and on. And as believers, as Christians, we know the right thing to do, Paul says in Romans 7, but we can't do it. We have this battle going on within us. And then what does Peter say we are to do with that battle? We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We are to hold ourselves off from them. We are to refrain from doing them. And if any of you have ever tried to do this, that's an impossible task, right? It's an impossible task. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot reform ourselves. 
So the first thing that Peter says that we face is this suffering from within. But the second thing is suffering from without. He goes on in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers... There's opposition from the world outside. Now, when Peter's using the word Gentile, if you're using the NIV version of the Bible, I think it says pagans in there. It's, the word is literally Gentile. And the word is known by its context. Uh, Gentile, uh, in Peter's time, there were, before Peter's time, I guess, there were two groups of people. There were Jews. There were those who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were Jew, Jews. And then there was everybody else. That's the Gentiles. Now, Peter is speaking here. He's keep, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What he's talking to Gentiles in the audience. So what is he talking about? Well, in New Testament usage, this became not a contrast between Jews and the rest of us, but became believers and unbelievers. And you know the meaning of by the context. And the word is used both ways in the New Testament. But Peter is talking to believers saying, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers. Unbelievers will falsely accuse us of being unbelievers, is what Peter is saying. Unbelievers will falsely accuse us as Christians, as believers, of being evildoers. For us today, what can that look like? Well, Christians are intolerant. They're backwards. They're bigots. They're hypocrites. They're hateful. They're narrow-minded. When those charges are leveled against us falsely, they are accusing us of evil. Unfortunately, sometimes our brothers and sisters, and we may have been guilty of that, have earned those reputations, but not always. Sometimes those charges are leveled against us because people are turning from the truth of God. They do not want to hear the truth of what God has to say, and so they accuse us of being evildoers. I had a friend after I came to know Jesus as my Savior, I became a follower of Jesus. He said, I can't believe you're turning your mind over to this. If I could figure out how to get you to change your mind, I could cure mental illness. Thanks. But that's accusing you of being, in a sense, an evildoer. This, this is so wrong, what you're doing, that it, it rises to the level of a person who's lost contact with reality. So what does Peter say we should do here when we are falsely accused by unbelievers? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep it honorable. Keep it morally good. Keep your behavior admirable. Conduct yourself with integrity. And he says, why? Because when that time comes that Jesus comes back, God will get the glory. And God's going to get the glory two, one of two ways. Because of your testimony of who Jesus is, some of those unbelievers will become believers. And when Jesus comes back, they will give God the glory for being part of his family. But the unbelievers are going to also give God glory, not because they wanted to, but because they have no choice, because they're going to look at this and say, he does exist. They were right. We were so wrong. God is indeed worthy of all honor and all worship, and I have spent my entire life denying that. God will get the glory and one way he's going to get that glory is when we as believers keep our conduct honorable. 
among those around us. This is a very high calling, a very high calling to keep our conduct honorable. In fact, I would say this is another impossible task. If any of you have ever tried to do that, and we're going to get into specific examples here that Peter goes into, you'll find that it's an impossible task. But hold on, uh, we're going to get to what God's answer to this is. Because remember, it's not about us following Jesus' example specifically. It's about what Jesus did for us and what he will do for us that enables us to follow his example. So Peter goes on from here to give three examples of suffering in this world that we face. He talks about government, he talks about the workplace, and he talks about marriage. These are long-term relationships that are not easily changed. And in Peter's dealing with them, these are not extensive teachings about these subjects. That's not Peter's point. Peter is using these relationships as examples of where hardships come from and how we are to respond. So we're not going to dig into all the details of each of these examples. I leave that to you to spend some time with later. But we're going to look at these examples as to how God would have us to respond. So the first one is we see in verses 13 to 17 is government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject. Arrange yourself under every human institution. In our context, that would be president, governors, mayors, commissioners, legislators, judges, government agencies. <laughs> this is where my problems come. I work, in a, I work in a job that is fairly heavily regulated by the state and federal government. And I have said more than once over the years, I love my career, I love how God has used it in my life and our lives, but I said if I ever leave the practice of medicine early, it's not because I didn't like the people and I didn't like the career. It's because I got fed up with the regulations. I just can't take the regulations anymore. All right, you want me to do what? Why? What is the connection between your regulation and me taking better care of people? Anybody ever been there in your job? Nobody? I'm the only one. All right, all right. Sorry, seeing a few people. Right, all right, all right, all right. We're seeing some more hands out there. Right? be subject to every human institution. He says we are to show honor, we are to do good, which will actually silence the ignorance of foolish people. It will silence the ignorance of foolish people. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> they haven't silenced. And we're going to see where that, where that comes in later. He says honor everyone. Honor the emperor. He says it twice in there. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor. And then his last words in verse 17 are honor the emperor. Well, who was he talking about? He was talking about Emperor Nero. Nero was the Roman emperor at the time. Nero, early in his reign, was really not too bad because he tended to listen to his advisors. But not too long after that, he was found to be a very cruel, deeply immoral, and unpredictable person. As a matter of fact, a year or two after this letter is written, there was a great fire in Rome, to def and people widely believed, maybe wrongly, but they widely believed that Nero set the fire. They were blaming him, and so to deflect the blame from him, he blamed the Christians in Rome and caused many of them to be persecuted and killed, uh, hung on crosses, 
to die, set on fire to burn to death. And it was probably under Nero uh, where Peter was executed in Rome. So when Nero says, honor the emperor, that's who he's talking about. So it puts my problem with the federal regulators in a different perspective, perhaps. But you can see where Peter said before, we have inward struggles against sin and we have outward struggles. So here we see the outward struggle as the government sometimes makes life difficult for us, but I also have those inward struggles as the sin nature rises up within me and says, they have no right to treat you like that. Stand up for your rights. Well, that's the sin nature talking. There's that inward struggle that's coming. And as I said, hold on, because we're going to see how God deals with this later. Well, the second one is the workplace, verses 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters. Arrange yourself under your masters. It's not doing any disservice to the passage to, instead of saying slaves or servants and masters to say employees and employers. It's the, I believe there's the... Uh, the analogy carries through. So he could be saying, employees, be subject to your employers with all respect, with all respect. Not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, to the unreasonable. He says, there's no credit if you do something wrong at work and you're reprimanded for it, you just stand there and take it like a brave soldier. He said, there's no credit for that. I mean, that's expected. He said, but if you do what is right, if you do what is good and you are reprimanded, even though you did good, he says, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We are called to endure when treated unfairly. We are called to stay under, to remain in that situation. Doesn't mean you can never change a job. Doesn't mean there's never time for that. But what it does mean is that we need to evaluate our own attitudes and perspectives in that time. Perhaps God is using that hardship in our lives to bring up that inward struggle. Again, you have no right to talk to me like that. Well, maybe they do have the right to talk to you like that because they're there, they're your, they're your employer. Perhaps God is using that to teach you, to raise something in your life, to change you, to mold you into his character. Then the third one he gets to, in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then later, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. He, he addresses wives and husbands separately. He says, wives who are living with husbands who are disobedient. Wives who are living with hus husbands who are disobedient to the word. They may be unbelievers, which was, I'm sure, a common thing then as people were coming to the Lord. There were mixed households where there were believers and unbelievers. And he may be talking to wives who have husbands who are believers who are not living the way that God would call them to live. They're not living in holiness and righteousness. Peter says, what should be your response? Your response is to be respectful and pure in your behavior, that perhaps they can be one without a word that God would work through your respectful and pure behavior to change them, regardless of whether he is worthy of that respect and pure behavior. Likewise, Peter addresses husbands. He says, seek to understand and show honor to your wife. Show understanding. What's one of the biggest things that women complain about their husbands and husbands 
report about their wives, she says, he just doesn't understand me. And what's the husband say? I just don't understand her. (laughs) They agree on that, right? Peter says, husbands, learn to live with your wives in an understanding way and show honor as the weaker vessel since they are fellow heirs with you of the grace of life. Show honor, whether or not you think they deserve that honor, don't throw your weight around, either physically or verbally, in an attempt to intimidate or control. You live with honor, seeking understanding. See, in this intimate relationship of marriage, which is a, which is a symbol of other relationships, Struggle and suffering enters because our sin nature wants our own way. And when that person next to us reflects back to us something that's not right and pure, we have a choice. We can respond by saying, yes, there's something in me that needs to change. Or we can become defensive and dig our heels in and refuse to change. Peter says, no, wives Be subject to your husbands, even those who are disobedient. Husbands, seek to understand and show honor to your wives. Well, I hope by now, and as I said, this is not a deep dive into any of these three areas of government, the workplace, and marriage. What it is are examples that Peter is giving us. And as you reflect on the responses that God is calling us to, you say, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I think that's the whole point. We should be saying, ouch. This is very hard. In fact, it's impossible. It is impossible for us to live the way God has called us to live. That's why I said that what did Jesus do and what will Jesus do is the answer to this situation. So we're going to look now at verses that, if you were paying attention, that we skipped, verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2. And we get hints of what Peter's talking about because in each of these categories, when talking about the government in 2.16, he says you should be responding as servants of God. When he's talking about the workplace, he said you should respond as one who is mindful of God. And when he's talking to the wives, he said you should be responding to your husbands as someone who is hoping in God. So where is the focus? The focus is not on me and what my suffering is. The focus is on who God is and what he is doing in the midst of this situation. So let's look at verse 21. He says, you have been called for this purpose, for to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Jesus did not sin. He did not lie. He did not return reviling for reviling. When spoken against, he didn't return it. When he suffered, he did not threaten. If you do that again, he said, at one point he said, don't you know I could call down legions of angels to correct this? But he did not do that. He did not threaten anyone. But what did he do? This is key. Don't miss this. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that even though he was suffering now at the hands of people outside of him, and he didn't have that inward struggle that we have with sin because he was sinless. That's what Peter's saying. He had no sin, no deceit. 
But he experienced that outward struggle of opposition against him. Instead of retaliating, instead of I'm going to get you, instead of demanding his rights, what did he do? He said, God, this is in your hands. I'm looking to the future. I'm going to entrust you to take care of this in your time, in your way. I am entrusting you to judge justly. I'm going to entrust myself to you to take care of this. He entrusted himself to God to right all of the wrongs in his time, in his way. But then what did he do? Peter goes right on in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. He caused us to die to sin and to live to righteousness, to live rightly, to be able to do right. Remember, God's calling us to do right. You say, this is an impossible task. I can't do this. Well, we can't do it, but Christ in us can. Because Jesus died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He died so that we can live now to righteousness, so that we can be dead to sin and we can live to righteousness. He made it possible for us to do and to be someone we could never be. Before Jesus in our lives, we were living for sin. We were living for ourselves. We were living for our own sinful inward desires. And we were dead to righteousness. Doing the right thing was important to us only as it got us where we wanted to go. But it had nothing to do with God's righteousness. It had to do with ours but Jesus caused us to die to sin and live to righteousness. So what did Jesus do? He gave us perspective on the outward struggle. When those come against us, when, when those in the civic society and the government or whatever it may be come against us, when someone in the workplace comes against us, when our spouses are not who we want them to be and there's opposition there, the example Jesus gives us, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. He will take care of you. He will bring the justice that is needed in the time that is needed. Your responsibility right now is to love and honor and respect in whatever situation it is in. And you say, but I can't do that because within me, as soon as I'm faced with that within me wells up this anger and hatred and bitterness and envy and all this stuff. That's why he says, that's why Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to not only take care of the outward struggle, but to take care of your inward struggle, to be able to change you from the inside out. And he says, because of that in verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, sorry, I said guardian, an overseer of your souls. That word overseer means guardian. We have a guide and we have a guard. When we come to Jesus Christ as our Savior and we become a follower of him, he's our shepherd and our overseer. He's our guide and our guard. This is not something he says, yeah, I might do this. He is. That's who he is for us. And note the intimacy of this. He is personally committed to get us safely through. He is our shepherd and our overseer. He is our guard and our guide. 
guide and our guard. He's going to take care of us. He's going to see us through this. The trials that he allows in our lives, that come into our lives, he is in the middle of that to transform us from the inside out. So he deals with that inward struggle and he promises that he's going to take care of those who are opposed against us in his time and in his way. So what's the bottom line when we struggle in, our, in these different relationships? Well, it's not about me and my rights. It's about God and doing right. When we face the sufferings in these relationships, and not just these three, but other relationships, it's not about me and my rights. It's about God and what it looks like to do right. We have no excuse to behave poorly, regardless of how we have been treated, because of verses 21 to 25. Now, that's not to say we're not going to respond poorly. This one survey that we had at work happened two years ago, and I was involved in a discussion where they dinged us on some things that were totally unreasonable, irrational, and you could, I'm already getting going, I have to stop. I could go on for a half hour about that discussion. It's still lingering in my, it's not lingering in my mind. It's right there. That's my sin nature dwelling on, chewing on this. And so I need to learn to commit that to the Lord that he's going to take care of anything that needs to be taken care of. I have no excuse to behave poorly regardless of how poorly I have been treated. Not because it's in me to do any different, because it's in Jesus Christ who died for me so that I can die to sin and live to righteousness. Well, what are some final thoughts here to close this up? How do we respond to suffering and why do we respond that way? So when life happens to you this week, look beyond unjust governments, unreasonable employers, and disobedient or weak marriage partners in fact, in any relationship you face, look beyond the people who misuse you to the God who died for you. Look beyond those who push you away to the God who has drawn you to himself. Look beyond those who treat you wrongly to God who promises to make all things right in due time. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. This is not to deny the existence of suffering. Oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. No problem. Everything's cool. No, you're suffering. These are hard times. This is not to deny the existence of suffering, but it's to acknowledge God's presence in it. And we deal with the inward struggle of sin by confessing our sinful responses when we're mistreated, and we ask God to change us by his grace. And when we face the struggles from outside, we trust God to bring the truth and justice that we have been denied in his time. That's why Peter says we're in the middle of these situations, for example, in 2.19. He says, be mindful of God. When you are suffering, be mindful of God. Because what's our temptation? Our temptation is to be mindful of me, to be mindful of what you are doing to me. And Peter says, no, be mindful of God. He suffered for us. He died for our sins. That's the past. And the future, he is coming back to judge justly. But for now, let us remember and believe that we have a shepherd and overseer of our souls to guide us 
and guard us. We are no longer straying like sheep. By God's grace, we have returned to him. So I'd like to take, as we close this time, a few moments for silent reflection as you think this through as to how God might be applying this to your life. The applications, I think, are as varied as the people who are sitting here. And I speak not as one who has arrived. I speak as one who is preaching this word to myself as well, that I have those same struggles of you have no right to treat me that way and learning to entrust myself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. But what did Jesus do for us? What will Jesus do for us? What does it mean that he is our shepherd and overseer, our guide and our guard? And think of the particular sufferings you are facing and where God is in the midst of that and what he might be trying to do in your life. So let's just take a few moments here of silent reflection. Father, we thank you for causing us to be born again to a living hope. Those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Savior can know that our sins are forgiven and that one day you are coming back for us to right all the wrongs. We don't have to right the wrongs because you will take care of it for us, whether it's now or whether it's in the future. And now you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the guide and guardian of our souls. God, help us to understand more deeply what that means, that when we face the trials of life, you are guiding us, you are there in the middle, and you are guarding us. Help us, Lord, to gain a new understanding of that reality. And Lord Jesus, I pray now as we go into our, the rest of our day and into this week, we ask that you would let your name be the first name that we call when each day begins. And we ask that it would be your name that would be the first name we call on when the storms of life hit. We really need no other, and I pray that we would depend on no other. In Jesus' name, amen.